Tandem Talk is a quarterly financial podcast sharing history, insight, and market commentary from Tandem's investment team. This podcast was created to give our clients and partners an opportunity to eavesdrop on the team's conversations. It gives the listener a way to hear from our team, understand our thought process and investment philosophy, and get to know a little bit more about us. Since we can't have you all in our office, we thought we would take our office to the listener and give you a seat at the table. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we do creating Tandem Talk. We invite you to join the conversation. Ask us a question by emailing us at information at tandemadvisors.com or suggest a topic for us to cover on our next episode. And now we turn you over to Tandem's investment team of John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. You're listening to Tandem Talk. Welcome back, everybody, to Tandem Talk. This is episode 12. We last joined you in February. This is a trademarked podcast, we're happy to say. As always, I am joined by the investment team here at Tandem. I'm John Carew. On my left is Billy Little. Hello, everyone. Across from me at this round table is Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And to my right is Jordan Watson. Hey, everyone. We are performing today in front of a live studio audience. So let's jump right into it, guys. We ready? So it occurs to me that since the last time we were together, we have seen a bout of bank failures. We have seen further rate hikes. We're now... uh, in a land where interest rates have become competitive again, uh, competitive for investment dollars. Um, We are certainly taking advantage of that. We have seen inflation slow, but still print at an unacceptably high rate. I think we would all agree with that. Show of nods confirms that. We are on radio or podcast, guys. (laughs) Um, And yet... We are in what some have labeled a new bull market. So let me just roll that out there in the middle of the table. I think it's a big old softball. Who wants to take the first swing? There was certainly a few things going on since the last time we talked. The only two that you missed was AI has now basically made us, rendered us obsolete. I wanted to leave something for you to bring up. (laughs) I should mention Lamar Jackson finally got paid. So those are my my two. Um, But it is surprising where the markets are today versus where where we were in the middle of February with everything. I think if anyone said that we'd see three of the four, three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history, we wouldn't be talking about the S&P being at essentially the same level as we were mid-February. May I jump in without derailing you for a second? I just want to say, acknowledge that, yes, they are three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history in terms of size of the bank that failed. But I sort of threw that out at a client lunch in Starkville, Mississippi, and I had, understandably so, a, a, a member in the audience sort of push back and say, not as a percentage of our economy or uh, in terms of the size of these aren't the three largest banks that failed. They are the three largest bank failures in our history. But to be clear, these were mid-level banks, right? Is that, That's, is that, is that a fair qualifier? In terms of FDIC insured deposit-taking banks, they were three of the four largest 
that have failed. He's now, if you look saying at though that everyone. if you if you talk about if you adjust deposits for inflation and things like that, mm-hmm. it starts to look a little different. Or if you look at as a percentage of total deposits, it looks a little bit different, which is a fair point. Yeah, but even still, I just want to had, acknowledge the guy in Starkville that called me out for that. <laughs> <laughs> even still, you've had four meaningful, three meaningful, four total bank failures. You've had rhetoric ramp up around U.S. default, including one presidential candidate saying that the U.S. just might as well go ahead and get it over with, go ahead and default. And it's, I think, surprising. Maybe, Billy, that's where you were going to see markets be positive year to date. I don't think I would have had that on my bingo card. Yeah, no, they're, I mean, they're positive year to date. Um, I think we, we might jump into how it's, how it's been skewed a little bit by the quality. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> By some of the largest companies, but where we were in from mid February, we are, we really are back to to where we were then. Even interest rates, the two year, the ten year, they're kind of back at the same levels. Now we did go much higher from mid February to the banking issues, and then we went back down. Now we're back up. Um, so there's been volatility between now and then, but we're we're right back where where we were. Earnings have come in better than expected. That's probably one thing that's alleviated market concerns. Better than expected on a reduced number, right? Correct. Reduced Com- expectations. Coming, but coming into than- the quarter, first quarter, earnings estimates were projected to be down 6% or so, and they're roughly down two, two and a quarter. And so, yes, they're still down. This is the second quarter that they're, they're actually down. But the fear was that it was going to be much worse, and they, it, it hasn't turned out that way. Fair enough. I have a couple of different paths I'd like to go down. But first, let's start with what has happened, and then we can turn to sort of under the hood of this market. But let's talk about the bank failures and how it happened, and also how resilient financial markets seemed to be in the face of that. Now, to the listener, uh, let's, let's state that to be clear, we had bank failures, but this is not like the financial crisis, right? During the financial crisis, we had banks who had assets on their books that became worthless, one word. Today, in this whatever it is, not crisis by any means, apparently, but we have banks who have assets on the books that are simply worth less, two words, right? So um, is it a problem? Is there more on the way? I would just say, look, we've gone from a world that for 13 years aggressively favored borrowers over savers, and in a very short period of time, that script has completely flipped. And we are now in a world that clearly favors savers over borrowers. Banks struggled with that. Y'all talk about that. Are there any other pockets of potential dislocation um, similar to what some of the banks saw? But we didn't even miss a step, really, in the market. So what about all this? So I think specifically to banks, there's a couple of things that are sort of interesting going on uh, beneath the surface. One, all of the issues that we saw that led to this remain unresolved. Uh, Nothing has changed really in that sense, Uh, because what happened to these banks was a bank run, which is very different than the financial crisis. And so to your point, John, these banks have assets that are worth less on their balance sheet now. Will that continue to be a problem? Yes, unless PNC gets their way. I don't know if y'all saw what PNC put forward. Um, but I they not. put forth a proposal where they want to be able to give their assets to the FDIC 
and be made whole. So they will give something that's trading at 90% of par, 80% of par, and the FDIC will just say, sure, and take uh, and give them back full value for it. So if that happens, the banks could have a solution on their hands. But currently, the issues remain... bold of them. <laughs> how, did, how did that go over, just out of curiosity? Uh, that I don't know. Okay. But the issues remain largely unresolved. What is interesting, though, is how bad sentiment has gotten around the banks. If you look at KRE, which is a regional bank ETF, short interest on that right now is 92%. So everybody is betting against banks. And so generally when you see an environment like that where everybody's getting on one side of the ship, you start to see it get a lot more volatile. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see some a lot of strength come out of banks even with these issues remaining unresolved because you're going to if i mean when that many people are covering exactly when that many people are short you're going to get squeezed i think it's also fair to say that we don't know what is yet to come we have no idea well Um, i was asking you to speculate i'm I'm not taking the bait um i don't know that anyone saw in mid-february Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank going under within the matter of matter of few weeks, and we went from a period of zero interest rates, negative interest rates, to where it is today, five percent um, on the Fed funds rate. There are going to be there are going to be issues, probably hidden for a while, and they're going to just appear, and that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things. I've written about the past couple months is the idea to kind of expect the unexpected. That things are going to pop up, and we're we're not going to know where uh, where the issues lie, but where we are with valuations, where the market is, I think risks have risen a little bit. Fair enough. Nobody has any comments to that. As you caught me taking a drink, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that Billy's point is well made. There are definitely pockets that have not really shown a lot of disturbance yet. There are some that people—I mean, people have been talking about insurance companies and things like that. Insurance companies face the same problem on the asset liability mismatch that has led to some issues with banks. Commercial real estate is getting hit really hard, which is actually a double whammy for a lot of these regional banks. They're some of the largest lenders when it comes to commercial real estate. And there's a lot of pockets out there where commercial real estate is just getting absolutely worked right now. You know, you just reminded me of something. I was just in um, New York. And on my way in, this is anecdotal. This is not even relevant, but I thought it was interesting. Um, On my way in from the airport through Queens, as we approached Midtown, I drove past two completely see-through, empty uh, commercial buildings. I mean, there wasn't a stick of furniture in there. You could see through every floor in one side and out the other in both of them, um, which I hadn't seen, honestly, in uh, anywhere in a long time. I used to see that in the Dulles Corridor outside of D.C. in the early 90s. You'd see empty buildings. But this, this was Queens, New York, just a mile from midtown Manhattan, and I saw Two completely empty buildings with for lease signs up. So it's a problem. It doesn't mean that something really bad has to happen from it, but it definitely is a problem that banks, uh, private equity, uh, insurance companies—I mean, you name it—are having to 
grapple with. You know, you just go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't know what this means. It maybe means nothing, but um, have has anybody noticed, and does anybody have a thought about how aggressively private equity has moved into lending now? They're not. It's not equity anymore. They're private lenders. Yeah. Do you think that? Uh, and y'all jump in if y'all would know better than I would on this. But I think that the non-traditional bank channel now has more in total loans outstanding than the mm-hmm. bank channel. So all these problems that you're seeing in banks, it's because we know about them. Billy, to your point about expecting <laughs> the unexpected, if there's more lending out there in non-bank channels, they are likely feeling the same pains that banks are. Um, perhaps their deposit base or their capital is just a little bit stickier, and so the problems haven't come to light yet. And maybe they well, never will. Look, as a lender, I mean, let's keep this really simple. As a lender, the way you make money is to have your cost of capital, what, whatever it costs you to raise the money you're lending. In a bank, that's what you pay for deposits, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you make money when your cost of capital is lower than your return on that capital that you're lending. So you borrow from your depositors at 1% and you lend it out at 2 you're profitable. The problem is you've lent all that money out at two in the long term, and now your depositors want four, right? I mean, isn't that sort of it in a mm-hmm. nutshell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You hear the stories of people who locked in mortgages below 2%, 3%. That's great for them, but somebody is on the other side of that trade holding <laughs> yeah. that loan, and it's not so great. And for nobody's them, for defaulting them. on a 3% mortgage if they right. can help it, right? Right. I mean, and and sort of as an aside, not really under our purview, but but that's part of the issue with why real estate values have remained so high in the face of rising interest rates because there's no inventory. Mm-hmm. Because unless you own multiple houses, no matter what somebody's going to pay you for yours, you're not selling. You're not selling because mm-hmm. you're going to go out and take a mortgage that's on it on your next place. It's twice the mortgage you're paying now, right? So the incentive to sell is. Right. Is minimal. I mean, you can sell if you're moving up or if you're downsizing, but, but, but just or the if you're fact not borrowing, that you, or if you're not borrowing, mm-hmm. that's correct. Which includes so many of us, uh-huh. right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah, the real estate market is basically frozen, at it least is, for residential real estate. Unless you have to move, then it's essentially it's tough. Just, I mean, yeah. why would you take get rid of your two percent mortgage and take on a seven? Right. It's tough, right? Yeah. The only way that inventory starts to go up is if you enter a more traditional recession, right? And then you start to see unemployment rise. And then the person that has the 2% mortgage, yeah, they want to keep that 2% mortgage. But if all of a sudden they're out of a job mm-hmm. for no reason other than the economy is in a recession, it gets a lot harder to even continue to pay that 2%, right? And I think that that is when you see, if you see some sort of reset where something like that would happen. Well, I think that's, that's the underlying issue of, of everything is, are we going into a recession or not? And if we do, how bad it is. If we are, though, isn't this like the most telegraphed recession that's ever happened? It is with the market saying one thing, Fed is saying one thing. Basically, with the market is saying that they're going to have to cut rates in the back half of this year and we go into a recession. Well, then some of those assets on the bank's balance sheets do become Get stronger, worthless. Oh, worthless. Got yeah, it. you start to have that credit event. But they could also yes become yes. stronger. Yes and yes, right? <laughs> well, they yes, they become, become stronger, stronger because interest rates lower. come down. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. If you're facing recession, where un- you know a traditional recession, unemployment rises, 
then that's where I'm what I was getting to. I do think that those uh, Fed expectations towards the back half of the year for rate cuts has begun to ease a little bit in the sense that uh, the market's gone up. Yes, but the forecast for rate cuts is is not as dramatic as it once was. Correct. I think it's fair to say nobody at this table has any conviction strong enough to wager our own money on as to whether we are headed to recession or not. Is that fair? Everybody's nodding Mm -hmm. in the affirmative, so that is fair. Um, But I think the Fed is using a very blunt instrument to try to act with surgical precision, and it almost never ends up as artfully as maybe they had hoped it would, right? And so we've been raising rates for, what, five quarters now, six quarters? I don't recall when we started, but... There's usually like a four or five quarter lag time in the before those rate hikes start to manifest themselves in the economy. So if these rate hikes really do put the brakes on the economy as they were intended to do, we should see that start to take hold fairly, fairly soon, shouldn't we? I would think that Signature Bank, First Republic, and Silicon Valley Bank would say that that has already started to take hold. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. But it does take – there is a lag to it. I think that your point is is really well made about that. Banks didn't fail after Jay Powell hiked 75 basis points the first time, right? I mean, it it takes a while for that whole thing to go – To work through. To work through the system. And you're starting to see those effects – now let's let's pivot just a bit um a gradual pivot um on our way to a 180 degree pivot so maybe this is 90 (laughs) um so interest rates now are real uh i i've had the privilege of of traveling a lot lately meeting with advisors and clients um and there is no doubt that the investing public is aware of where interest rates are presently So, um, in the overall spectrum of things, when interest rates were zero, the Federal Reserve and, frankly, every other central bank on the planet um, really pushed investors into things that they might not otherwise wish to be in, right? If your rate of return is zero on fixed Mm -hmm. income, you're looking for some other return, even if it does carry with it greater risk. And, And quite honestly, the risk was irrelevant because we were all pushed out further on the risk curve, which minimized the risk until it didn't, right? Hmm. But now there's competition for what had been equity dollars, potentially. Does that mean anything to us at all? Are we aware of that? Do we take note of that? Do we care about that? Does it have anything to do with market multiples, or or is it even a supply-demand issue for stocks? I think... It does, like you said, I think it does until it it doesn't, right? I think it, it matters or it doesn't matter until it does matter. Um, You've seen some multiple compression. I mean, you saw valuations go to a crazy place during the middle of COVID because there was so much money coming into the they system. They almost went to AI levels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Money was coming into the system. Valuations skyrocketed as interest rates went to zero. You've seen interest rates go higher, and you've seen that traditional relationship between valuations and interest rates hold. Interest rates rise, valuations tend to compress. And so you have seen that a little bit. And I would expect that if interest rates stay elevated or even continue to rise, 
that relationship would just continue to hold. I, I would agree with you. And it was, um, it was up until the two banks failed in, in March, right? You started, to, you saw, you started to see equities in technology kind of come down from, it started to peak in beginning of February and started to come down in, in mid-March. But then since that point, everything has kind of taken another leg up. Mm-hmm. As interest rates have also gone mm-hmm. up, you've pro- you've started to see. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I actually had that in my notes for this. It's been a little surprising. S and P's basically been flat for six weeks, right? Correct. But you started to see the triple Q's outperform pretty handily as interest rates have gone up, have and the dollar's up. actually strengthened. Correct. And for the past like three years, that's been, been the trade, right? Complete opposite. Yields yep. up, tech down. Yields down, tech up. And so you have seen. But yields up, dollar up is not a surprise, right? I mean. No, I feel like those normally go hand in hand. Yeah, correct. and so you see tech higher trade, interest rates attract correct investment correct. in this country. But generally, highest interest rate, higher interest rates have taken dollars out mm-hmm. of that large cap growth <laughs> trade. Got it. And right now, for the past, I don't know, Billy, what two, three weeks, mm-hmm. you've seen them rising together. Correct. Which has been surprising. Correct. So I want to bring Jordan in because he and I were talking a little bit before this, and I think just to sort of tee it up for you here. There's a lot of press out there that says this is a five-stock market, that, right. that absent five stocks that are heavily levered to AI and mm-hmm. all things tech, the market is basically churning water. But what, what do you see, Jordan? I would agree that that market leadership is very narrow. Um, you can just look at it, if you look at the S&P 500, if you look at SPY, which is the market cap weighted ETF for it, it's up. 8% over the last 12 months. But if you look at it equally weighted, it's up about 1% over the last 12 months. So you've certainly had narrow market leadership, which isn't great in terms of market stability. But earnings did come in better than anticipated. I think S&P earnings for 2023 full year estimate is still estimated to actually grow over last year, albeit low single digit percent. Um, and then looking forward to 2024, which I know is is still a ways away, but estimates are for 11% earnings growth. So you do have positive forward earnings growth um, that's baked into the market right now. I mean, we'll see so how that plays out. So that's not forecasting a recession. Not an earnings recession, but earnings can continue to grow if the real economy slips into a recession. Yeah, no, and well. I think that's where the divergence to me is interesting because the market is still, even though it has come up, market's still expecting the Fed to cut 25 to 50 basis points toward the back end of the year. Q4 estimates are expected to be up 9%. That is a divergence. The Fed no is not kidding. the Fed is not going to be cutting in the, face the of that. in the face of that. So something is I would back I would back the bond market over <laughs> over estimates personally in terms of that. I mean, I think that you have seen Do it. Do you still put a lot of faith in the bond market even though there's a finger on the scale in terms of the Federal Reserve and their balance sheet and all that? Well, I would say this stuff. about Estimates. Yeah. You go out to 2024 mm-hmm. estimates, or not even about 2024. You just go out a year and a half out at any time. The trend over the past 20 years uh, has been incredibly consistent that estimates start high and they get cut and then they get cut again and then they get cut again and, and cut again and beat. cut again and then they get beat. Right. Right. And so we're in that set the bar high phase right now. I just wouldn't put a lot of stock into. 
estimates 18 months out. Analysts just don't know. There's too much unknown right now. Mm. So they've just gone with the safe, always present. Oh, it'll be up 11% next year. Poor analysts. <laughs> um, so, I hope they're not listening. So, so no thought really on competition for investment dollars with fixed income? Well, I think that's why you've seen valuations get compressed. Okay. There definitely is competition. You are seeing money find its way into money market funds um, or people just rolling treasuries on their own or just chasing higher yields at banks. Even PacWest, which still seems like it's probably the next bank to go if there's another one that goes, actually saw deposit inflows because yeah. they're now paying 4 or 5% or something like that on their accounts, on their deposits, and people chased that yield back into the bank that's most likely to fail right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, you're definitely seeing that competition there, right? Can we say that on this podcast? <laughs> well, I'm not saying it will fail. Asterisk, asterisk, full disclaimer. It's just trading like it's next to go. I mean, that thing has lost a lot of value. And you're actually seeing its bonds trade really, really poorly as well. I think at one time its bonds were trading at $0.30, cents, $0.40 cents on the dollar. And that's hard to come back from. When a company's trading like that, that's basically a, a signal that all okay. is definitely not well. So if I could, I want to go back to – I want to revisit something that Jordan said and, Ben, you, you touched on. And, Billy, I think you implied this. S&P equal weighted index, Jordan, you said mm-hmm. is up roughly 1% which means we're flat. Mm-hmm. And folks, what that simply means is that the S&P is not an equal weighted index. It's a market cap weighted index. So the largest companies in the S&P 500 have the biggest influence on its direction, right? And those five companies today that really seem to be driving that bus are, let's see if I can get them. There's Alphabet, which used to be called Google. There's Meta, which used to be called Facebook. There's NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. Microsoft, Apple, Apple, and Amazon, and Amazon. So there's six that are really their size is so substantial now that they really do drive the direction of the traditional S and P 500. But if you just treated every company in the S and P 500 equally, what we would then learn is that the index is essentially flat for the year. Is that a fair? depiction of what's going on yeah i mean you could see it in the broader index when you go even past the s&p right the nasdaq is up over 20 percent this year in the russell 2000 small caps they're flat definitely being driven by the largest companies okay how does that story end do others come along for the ride? What happens when leadership gets this narrow traditionally? There's one of two outcomes. Either the average stock begins to participate and you would see a very strong rally because not only do you have the leadership continuing to rally, but you would have other stocks getting in on it. And that's when things would do well together. The flip side of that is these five or six stocks roll over and you already have the average stock not doing that well. And all of a sudden you have market leadership rolling over and that would lead to a market that is rolling over. Now, which of those is going to happen? I don't know. But those are sort of the two outcomes, I would think, that when you have leadership this narrow. So bring this home to us here at Tandem. It has been my observation that really since late last year, third quarter of last year maybe, we have just had flat out more things to sell than buy. Not a ton, not a lot of activity in the Tandem portfolios, but there have been more things to sell than buy. And while that doesn't always translate to major moves in the market or anything else, it can be an indicator 
of an inflection point in at least a portion of the market. And it could, it could sort of be flashing a warning sign that, you know, there are pockets of the market that are valuations that are tough to justify to the high side. Are my observations off the mark? Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. I think it's been more maybe the very back end of Q4, more so this year than last year. Last year, we were still definitely net buyers, Q4, specifically into Q3. Q4, still some selling. Q1, One. still some selling. But mm-hmm. I think within the last few weeks, it's probably getting it's gotten closer to what I would call neutral, where yeah. we've had some opportunity on the buy side and some names that have gotten beat up. We've still had opportunity to the sell side and names that are overvalued. And so you're seeing action right now take place sort of on both ends of the spectrum, which really isn't that different, I feel like, from Q4 of 2011 and Q3 of 2011, where you sort of saw action on each side of the ledger. It's volatile, and volatile begets opportunity to sell when volatility moves to the upside and to buy when volatility moves to the downside. And you think that we are still in a place very much like that. Is that fair? It is. And it's very, it's just very company specific. That's, that's very company specific. Because the actual market right now for the past six weeks has been absolutely nothing empty of volatility. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of volatility in individual names where you are seeing some names trade very, very well. And some names that are becoming more attractively valued. I think we're probably closing in on the limits of our capacity to say anything remotely interesting. (laughs) Um, And so I would like to just do uh, a couple of things around the table. Um, First, we've we've talked about clearly the news of the day. But if there's one thing that really has your attention, what would it be? By the way, I asked each of you this question before we started. Mine is the gap uh, in the widening gap between market expectations and Fed expectations. Even S&P earnings expectations and Fed rate policy expectations, that gap has got to close one way or another. That is, that is what's most interesting to me right now is do we close it with the economy uh, doing poorly, doing better, um, do the expectations of Fed rate cuts just end up going away. The Fed has certainly come out over the past week or past few days and pushed back against Fed rate cuts, um, which they've been doing for a year and a half now. Um, but that's that's my kind of most interesting thing of the market right now is are, are those expectations and how we close that gap. That's a good one. I think for me, it has to do with the debt ceiling, but not in the way that everybody's talking about it. You just crushed my next talking point. <laughs> <laughs> well, Go I'm ahead. not going to talk about okay. it. Okay. Go ahead. Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. I think one uh, sort of underrated risk is the liquidity drain that could come out from the conclusion of the debt ceiling talks. Uh, because cash at the Treasury Department has just been getting spent. They haven't been able to build that up because they're basically at the debt ceiling already. So whenever this is behind us, and I do personally believe that they will reach some sort of compromise, the Treasury Department will need to issue a lot of debt to replenish that cash. Well, when you're replenishing that cash, you're taking liquidity out of the banking system. There's going to be an imbalance to the supply side. So you're going to see yields rise. And you're starting to see some people equate it to that of a rate hike uh, because you're going to see the liquidity come out and you're going to see yields rise. And you've already seen that some 
a little bit over the past two weeks. Uh, I think the two years up 60 plus basis points. So maybe there's some front running of that uh, expected surge in yields, but I don't really think I see that being discussed a ton so far. I think that's an interesting point. You still crushed my next topic. (laughs) That's okay. Jordan? I think that I would just watch the jobs market really closely. I think, you know, Billy, you talked about the divergence between what the Fed is on record saying and what the market's pricing in. I think what could cause the Fed to pivot and end up cutting is if we see weakness appear in the job, job market. If we see initial claims continue to tick higher, now that headline CPI is below the Fed funds rate, historically that has had to happen. And I think in the past eight cycles, that has had to happen um, for the Fed to pause and then begin cutting. So we, we now have Fed funds above headline CPI. I think if you start to see weakness in the jobs market in the broader economy, the Fed because inflation's forecast, headline inflation's forecasted to come down pretty substantially over the next couple of months. I think three and a half percent by by June, uh, by June CPI, which would come out in July. So if you have headline at three and a half percent and the Fed funds rate at five to five and a quarter, then you've got a really restrictive Federal Reserve. You know, keep an eye on inflation. We started to see shelter inflation finally begin to peak and roll over. That's a third of CPI. So if we start to see rents, owner owner equivalent rent move down, then you've got a large portion of CPI to start to move in the right direction. So keep and an eye on... that's a big part of CPI, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes up a third, if not more than, than the index. So you've got inflation easing pretty rapidly. And a part of that is due to the basing effect. I mean, May and June CPI last year was near 9%, right? So you're still comping a 3.5% number on that. It's not great. But you've got the Fed funds rate well above headline CPI and potentially a weak jobs market going into the end of the year. I think that narrows the gap between where the Fed policy rate is now and where expectations are. Well said. Let's wrap it up. So I want to bring this home to who we are. We are a quantitative, company-specific, fundamentals-only, bottom-up manager of assets. And so with that in mind, yes or no questions, not head nods. Does inflation impact how we operate our model? Yes or no? No. Do jobs impact how we operate our model? Yes or no? No. No. Does the debt ceiling, resolution or not resolution, impact how we operate our model? Yes or no? No. No. Fed versus market expectations impact how we operate our model? Yes or no? Nope. No. Thank you for playing my game. (laughs) The point of all of this is that, folks, there is a lot of uncertainty out there. And to be absolutely clear, sometimes uncertainty resolves itself in the most amazing, spectacularly beautiful of ways. And sometimes it doesn't. And we have no opinion of how all this uncertainty resolves itself. But what we do know is that uncertainty can create opportunity. It can create opportunity to misprice assets either way. It can misprice assets by making them unsustainably overvalued, or it can misprice them by making them unsustainably undervalued. And that is our job, to identify companies that meet our criteria, the ability to grow through any economic environment, right, when they are mispriced by the market. And it is certainly times like these when those opportunities tend to present themselves. Well said. Guys, another good Tandem Talk. Tandem Talk 12 comes to a conclusion. I'm John Carew. I'm joined by Billy Little. Ben Carew, 
Jordan Watson. I want to take a moment to thank all the people behind the scenes. The producer, audio, and sound engineer for this is LMC Sound System and Lindsay Collins, sitting over here at the soundboard to my left, cracking up. We are produced and directed by Elaine Natoli, and this is her brainchild. Congratulations, Elaine. Um, we are co-produced by Julia Hoffman, who is sitting over here with red cheeks because it's about 105 degrees in this room right now. <laughs> Um, and that brings us to a conclusion. Uh, this podcast, Tandem Talk 12, is available on our website through SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We hope you enjoy it. It's been a pleasure bringing it to you. We'll see you next time. Tandem Talk is hosted by Tandem's investment team of John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Tandem Talk is co-produced by Elaine Natoli, Julia Hoffman, and Lindsay Collins with LMC Sound System. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors Incorporated does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.